0: So, to respond to some questions you've submitted. So, if I observe the eight precepts, I saw a stranger killing and I didn't stop him. Is it, I consider killing? No, because you didn't kill. So, there's a few here. Am I wasting time? Some teachers have spoken about not wasting one's time. If, quote, you're only sitting, but your mind is wandering, meditation is not how long you can sit, exclamation mark. (laughs) Appreciate your kind guidance. (laughs) Similar question. When I sit down to meditate with my eyes closed, I always fall into dream state. When I meditate with my eyes open, I cannot concentrate and a lot of disturbing thought. How do I overcome this problem? Sitting meditation for a while, I can feel some sensation in the body like ants moving in the scalp or palm. What should I do when these kind of sensations arise? Should I observe it or ignore it and go to other part of the body which has no sensation? Please explain the steps or experience a meditator goes through towards first jhana Well, I think these are the kind of things you go through (laughs) Wandering mind Falling asleep (laughs) Strange itchy sensations in your body (laughs) That's what you go through the idea is to go through it rather than stick in it. <laughs> and uh, essentially there are certain factors that have to be uh, brought up. Uh, remember, these are all of Buddha's presentations are on factors we already have. He wouldn't invent anything. He didn't invent things. He just defined and made things clear, Stuff, things we already have. And so... The first factors, uh, first jhana is, is, well, first of all, viveka, which is a sense of being able to step back and get things in perspective, just not be into just a continual action, and reaction to one's mind. And uh, what supports is vitaka, is the first, vichara, second, piti, third, sukha, ease, and often what's appended, that is ekagata, or to gather together, at one place. Now Vitaka, because these are Pali words, it may sound like something very odd or strange, but it's actually just remember these are just words. Vitaka is the ability to point the mind, to bring something to mind. Bring something to mind, to conceive something. So if somebody says what's your mother's name, you bring it to mind, don't you? Somebody says what time it is, you bring it to mind. So that what happens? Say, when somebody asks, what's your mother's name, what what actually happens there? There's a kind of little action, then his name pops up, doesn't it? How did that happen? (laughs) Now that particular action is called Vitaka. And this is essential because, uh, well, I think it's, it's very, it's one to consider these are the factors you need. I don't think the Buddha would have told us if we didn't need it. So, what do you bring to mind? Because what you bring to mind, for a moment, places your attention there. It acts, so your mind isn't just swinging around, dreaming. It's definitely an action, so there's a decisive action. You act, or well, the mind acts, and it pop, brings something up. So this is an action there. You need to act. But it's it's a it's a subtle action it's an action we do every day we know, because it happens so instinctively you never really notice it it's obvious till you can't remember somebody's name what was that name of that person that woman I met three years ago um, um you can feel this kind of ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> now that that's the that particular action ooh, ooh, that's Vituka trying to point to something but he can't find the object you know See, so you can see it with that oh, what's that ooh, ooh, where is it? Ooh, ooh. you know if it stays like that you get, <laughs> it gets very frustrating So bringing to mind a, a suitable object for meditation or recollection so recollection is, is relatively easy you can deliberately bring to mind death you can bring to mind the memory of someone you are grateful to you can pops up. And you, you bring it, you keep feeding it. Oh, she did this, that's very sweet, I remember her smiling and doing this, that, and the other. Oh, it pops up. And then it stays there, doesn't it? You, you brought it to mind. You can bring to mind an um, image of a skeleton, you know, you want. Or you can bring to mind, these, these are recollections, the Buddha. These are things, your particular things you, you think about. And as you bring to the mind, you're consciously, your mind is not wandering because it's got something to pin itself to recollection that may help to just push your attention away from this drifting passive state where you know you're either sleeping or you're wandering both of those are passive states they dreaming and then your eyes are you're really dreaming with your eyes open both of those are passive states because you're not deliberately decisively doing anything and that May you know. Sometimes we want to relax, but you know, you're still relaxing. It's just relaxing to a level of habit. It's not relaxing, getting past that level of habit to deeper levels of of ease. So we try to point directly, point the attention to something. You know, now this is where you choose your meditation object. And for example, just the sensation of your body sitting. How do you know you have a body? Just very similar course. You know, the pressure of your legs on the seat, pressure of your backside on the cushion. You know, that's not that subtle. Naturally, it's not particularly interesting either. But you can point the mind there, point the mind there. Second factor, because um, often these things are not particularly stimulating, vichara. Vichara is more like the question, how is it? Tell me all about it. What's it feel like? For example, is it hard or soft? Is it steady or wavering? Is it painful or pleasant? What does it remind you of? You know, anything like that, just some quality. And so then you can come into your body, you feel the upright structure of the body. Okay, this is the back, spine, shoulders, elbows, hands, knees, hips, feet, and you point. And every time you point, you go there and tell me about it. What does it feel like? What does a hand feel like? Warm? Is it warm? Yeah, it's warm. Mm -hmm. Can you tell the difference between the palm of your hand and your fingers? Point to your fingers. and One finger and the next finger. So, you know, if you're going to pick something up, which fingers would you use? So so this is another, just an example of deliberately pointing and vichara sampling, tasting, feeling it. So these are essential factors, because then the mind is engaged. It's engaged with something that doesn't stir up passion or ill will. It's not engaged with something that's kind of some far-fetched notion that you think about. It's just using the thinking mind to point and pick up some quality sensation. And you can do this with breathing in and breathing out. Anything that tells you you're breathing in or breathing out. How is it? How is the out, how's the end of the out-breath? How's the beginning of the in-breath? What's the flow? Can you point to that? Can you tell me about it? Can you know the difference between breathing in and breathing out? What does it feel like in your belly? What does it feel like in your chest? What does it feel like in your nose? Anywhere. So it doesn't matter what it feels like, so much as you're, you're engaging with it. Your mind is active picking it up and getting it then you don't drift and dream now if that's something you can't, it's too subtle, you can't focus on it it's your mind can't get it then you choose another object you walk up and down and you feel the sensations in your feet back, your legs, anything that tells you you're moving This is uh, the movement gives a little more for the mind to hold on to generally movement is something that we can easily track Changes from this to that. Moving things are much easier than still things. Still things, your mind kind of can't pick it up. It's moving, particularly the sensations are changing, obvious sensations, pressures, then it's a bit easier to pick up. Still, you have to engage because, like a lot of these processes in meditation, they are involuntary. Well, partly involuntary. Obviously, walking, you decide to walk. Once you get it going, you can more or less walk along and drift and dream. You know, the body kind of does it for you. It's a little more engaged because if you've got to have some attention so you don't fall off the end of a platform or hit the wall. But you don't have to be that awake to walk up and down. (laughs) So you have to get quite active again. You know, what is walking? What's the difference between one step and another? It doesn't matter. You don't have to have answers, but you have to keep the mind pointing there. Otherwise, it will drift off and you're looking to what, when you pick it up, and, and what you might able to settle with. So it does begin to get some sense of engagement, some sense of actually bedding into, landing on and meeting that experience. So, you know, this is quite essential. So we do that as our primary thing. And then the second aspect of itaka vichara, you could say, is how do you deal with all the rest of the stuff that happens? The sights, the sounds, the memories, the dreams, the irritations. How do you deal with all that stuff? Because, yeah, you know, you've got your meditation object, but as we all know, there's plenty of other stuff going on that you don't don't want. But there it is. (laughs) So one theme is to, as soon as you notice that, you notice, here I am thinking about dinner, or yesterday, or New Year, or work, or my son or something other. stop, pause. As soon as you notice it, pause. Even say the word, stop. So interrupt it. And then where is your breathing now? Where is your body now? Where is your walking now? Just whatever your meditation is, you return to that. And you try to return with a quality of complete patience. Don't get frustrated or irritable with it. You pick up use a word, breath. This is a sort of basic thing that we do. Now, you know, because this this topic is so crucial, then of course uh, teachers have their own skills with that, and some people do this uh, noting system, whereby you just keep noting, making a mental note, thinking. So you're drifting along dreaming, 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 thinking. And by naming it, as soon as you name it, you're not in the dream, you're outside it. As soon as you name thinking, then you're outside it, right? Because you're out now looking at it. So that dislodges the mind from being in this drifty state. And then now breathing, you put it back, you put it back. And there's different ways you can do that. Some people recommend, well, you can do that, or you can just notice you're drifting as soon as you notice it take a long breath out, so the, the your meditation, whatever your meditation object is you consciously bring it to the fore, make it more obvious so the mind can shift over to that focus, to that focus of attention but for a drifty dreamer, you definitely need to be active it may be walking helps, speaking to yourself helps so that's you know, actually saying, breathing some teachers recommend using a word with the breath so you use the word bud first syllable bud on the in breath and the and the syllable do on the out breath so it's always this sense of engagement to pin attention to the breath to the object, the breath object if the object is breathing and the vichara begins to invite the chitta in Chitta is to do with the feeling how does this feel? that is a little more questionable because mmm how is it? And sometimes your mind drifts off. So you have to find a balance between vitaka and vichara. If it's too much vitaka then you keep pointing but you don't actually get the feeling for it. If it's too much vichara and not a vitaka the tend to drift into moods and feelings. But then blending the two does that make sense? At least as a theory So this is the first qualities or facets that need to be um, enhanced for jhana, steadying the mind. And this is the really active stuff. Now if the meditation theme is appropriate and and your mind does settle into it, certain things begin to happen. Obviously, first of all, what happens is the mind struggles. Hindrances come up. you You have to work with those. And there's a whole range of things to work with. Uh, I've talked briefly this morning with the five hindrances. you know. And so you need to name the hindrances. Because they don't necessarily, they generally hide under some reason or somebody else. I'm fine, but she's just a really nasty, annoying, irritating person. But I'm, I'm not, I've been going ill will. She just is a nasty, irritating, annoying person. <laughs> Everybody knows she's a nasty, irritating, annoying person. And she never turns up on time, she doesn't do the work, and she's lazy. And, and, you know, but I don't, I'm not, I have an ill will. Oh yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so we think we're talking about facts. <laughs> so you've got to get into the what is the emotional current behind the thought. This is why sometimes if your mind is thinking, you don't necessarily want to stop it so much as disengage. And generally the advice is you disengage from it two or three times, or a few times, and it keeps coming back, you probably need to investigate it. Why do I keep thinking of this thing? What's in it? And there's maybe ill will, or craving, sense, desire, or dullness, sleepiness, or classically restless worry, very common. Planning, figuring things out, creating to-do lists in your mind. When I get back after a treat I do this and that and this and that. Oh, I must remember that. Oh yeah, I've got a phone so and so. This all sounds very logical and reasonable, just sitting organizing everything. You're sitting in a meditation retreat organizing, you know, the second of January. That's really important, isn't it? When you're sitting meditating and there's a possibility of realizing Nibbana, it's important to remember what shopping you need to do on the second of January. <laughs> That's really important though. No, no, that's, that's called restless worry. <laughs> or you worry about what people think of you, what you did in the past, and what you can be reborn as. This kind of, so the mind is just restlessly not, it's a kind of unhappy, unsatisfied state. And so you, what is that? You know, feeling of that. So I was saying this morning, feeling of it and doubt, speculation, the mind never able to settle. These are quite similar. So, and as I say, they, they do um, hide underneath good reasons. But you, you recognize, you know, why do I keep doing it? I don't need to write a shopping list every time I sit down and meditate, do I? Because <laughs> it's the mind wants something to play with. So then we, ah, oh, the thing. then what's necessary? So, with these hindrances, you, you both disengage. and You access the real emotion behind it, and then you, what's necessary with this? Perhaps we just need to firm up a bit. Just stop. Put it down. Just stop. You know, but there's a certain firmness, but a like a parent. You know, a parent advise. You know, guiding a, a child. Just put that down. It's not harsh, but it's firm. Or it could be a quality of soothing is necessary. Or inquiry, you know, like with craving. Oh, I really need that, really want that, really got to have that. Wait a minute, look. Look at people who, who have whatever it is, you know, a car or TV or something. Are they enlightened, happy, liberated? No. Remember two years ago when you got that new whatever it was? How long did the happiness last? So what do you think the next thing that you want is going to do? It'll just do exactly the same. You have this real, the real kind of energizing bit is when you're about to get. And you're really quite excited. You're about to get. As soon as you got it, you can't want it because you have it. You can't want what you have. But the excitement is in wanting and being about to get it. Once you got it, you don't can't want it because you got it. Now, the really strong energy comes around reaching out to get it. That's where the energy is. That's where the glow is. Oh wow, look at that. Great thing. Really about to get it. About to get it. That's where the excitement is. As soon as you got it, bubble bursts. A few moments it's gone. So this is the crazy thing about tanha, craving. Is you only get that that kind of excited feeling when you haven't got it when you haven't got the thing you want as soon as you've got it, the feeling stops then it goes to something else so you, you can investigation you begin to investigate the logic of craving or the logic of ill will you know, this person that you have a problem with do you think she never did a single good thing in her life? no Do you think she's dedicated to complete evil and and being nasty and objectionable 24 hours a day? No. In fact, how much of her behaviour is annoying you? Maybe two or three things she did or didn't do. So, you want to focus on that? Why don't you focus on the bad things she didn't do? (laughs) Like, she didn't kill me. She didn't beat me over the head. (laughs) She didn't run away with my husband. (laughs) So you start to pull apart the way that the mind clamps onto a particular object, one aspect and it sticks there getting mesmerized. And so you think, look just loosen up, think your way through it, attack it, question it question with ill will. you know if everybody in the world is really sweet and nice, would you still have would you still be happy? Would it make you any happier? Don't think so. you probably have ill will towards yourself then. I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as everybody else. So ill will is of several kinds. You know, the obvious one is towards others. And the other kind of ill will is imagining other people have ill will towards us. This is a quality of fear. And again, it's not evident. But we may find ourselves uh, slightly embarrassed or um, when we uh, things we wouldn't like other people, we are concerned other people, we always dress and behave in certain ways to make sure nobody else objects to us or dislikes us or something or the other. And uh, if you're in a, you know, with other people, you may very well feel you're inferior. You may feel intimidated by other people. Well, who's doing that? What's doing that? This is ill will towards yourself, hostility. You imagine they're less worthy than other people. This is quite usual, quite normal. It's probably more continual than than ill will towards other people. Is imagining other people have ill will or look down or or you're not as good as others. But the result is the mind doesn't blossom, is defensive, It's contracted, doesn't blossom. You can't feel your own richness, your own abundance. Now it's true that I may not be as good a mathematician or as strong or as quick-witted or as whatever, you know. But that's nothing to do with uh, what really counts, jitta. We all have our own jitta, our own, and there there is the potential for beauty, richness, completion, fulfillment. And this quality of self-dismissiveness is a disease that hampers that. So these hindrances have to be met, uh, because everybody has them everybody experiences them uh, so these uh, investigation firmness, returning to the meditation object, goodwill kindness uh, laughing at yourself a bit not taking yourself too seriously you know, it's this is what phew, a lot of the Dhamma teaching is just about dealing with this if you get through these you know, you're really on the way because these things are just miserable. <laughs> and so, whether you're completely enlightened or whatever, you, these are the most obvious things to get through to start to feel confident in yourself. And this sense of confidence and composure. You don't have to be like anybody else. You're neither as good as anybody else. You're, you're not good or bad, you're just who you are. You know. You don't have to do this measuring thing. And you don't need to carry grudges towards others. And you don't need to defend yourself against others. And you don't need to have a lot of stuff to make you feel good. And you don't need to figure out the future. And you don't need to have to understand all of every Buddha's teaching. You don't need to be thinking and speculating. So the aim of this is to just get a weight off the mind. You know, it's to get the burden off the mind. And when, as the degree to which we do that, any time that we do that consciously, and the point is, you have to meet the hindrance and turn it away. You can't just skip round. You've got to meet it and turn it away. Because then the mind feels this quality of something has been lifted off. And what happens Mm -hmm. is something called piti, which is a sense of uplifted. The mind, be- the chitta begins to blossom. And the Buddha likened it to someone getting out of jail. Oh. Someone taking a heavy load off their back. Oh. A traveler walking across the desert, slogging across this desert, and they see a lake. Oh. He <laughs> said it's like this, yeah? So there's a certain sense of buoyancy uplift there's a lifting in the citta because the burden has dropped off or dropping off and so then quite a lot of energy can happen sometimes people get so much pity that it becomes uh, too much you know they're just fizzing with it <laughs> they start crying and just so it's, you know over over brimming over with it then you you know but ideally the the thing is that that Moves into what's called sukha, which is ease. So imagine the person crossing the desert sees the lake, gets the lake, and drinks the water. Do they feel good? You bet. Ah, oh, that's that sukha. It's like a sense of relief, ease, and the because this pity makes the mind a little bit unsteady. It's like it, it wakes up, but it's suddenly oh. oh, oh and then you want to calm it. So this is where, if you're doing anapanasati, you soothe and spread the energy through your body. You try to feel the entire body, the energy in the body. So the energy in the body helps to ground it a bit. You know, and Your breathing out helps to ground it a little bit. And um, if, it, if it's a persistent problem, because there's a certain emotional elation with pity, you see the pity tends to come in waves like waves of it, like any other emotion, they move in terms of waves. And um, you focus on the, the wave arises, you focus on the wave going down. The next one comes up, going down. You know, you focus on the subsiding aspect of the wave. Piti is called a sankara is an activity. Sukha is a feeling. The difference is that the, the piti activates, and the sukha just uh, spreads, suffuses. Now, when that, is, when that result of that tempering, that blending, realizing a hindrance isn't present, feeling what it feels like to have got out of jail, then you, you got out of jail, now you go home. If you got out of jail, you feel excited, you go home, you sit down, and, oh, back home again, wow, this is very nice, you know? <laughs> it's like that. And when you get home, you just want to sit there for a while and take it in. This is called Ekāgata. You're established, there's a one-pointedness, there's a one-place. Your mind doesn't want to go outside. It doesn't want to run around. Uh, it's established. So it, it, This is called absorption. And it means the mind is now absorbed into the theme, and it's, it's, it's at home with it, it's settled in it. It doesn't want to go out. Yeah. And so this is called Ekāgata, one-pointedness. And these are factors of the first jhana, now again this question about sensations, you can also get not just mental hindrances but um, strange paranormal experiences, lights, sounds, um, itchy feelings and you just got to, these also can happen, essentially you respond to them, breathing, soothing, calming, turning your attention away, withdrawing, calming, steadying, depending on what's necessary. Your body may feel imbalanced, you may feel like your one side is heavy, the other side is light. Uh, All kinds of strange things happen because when you're shifting your energy from this ongoing drive, first of all it's a bit like having vertigo. A little bit like that you feel, you know, it has to find a place to settle. So sometimes you feel a bit imbalanced. Then keep your eyes open. Get, keep it simple go into the sensations of the body and simple physical sensations so that's that's uh you know a f- brief pocket map you could say but like any other map like any map the map is good but the you do the walking it's it's not like walking across a piece of paper. <laughs> gonna walk the territory of your your body mind and all its inheritance and not get lost in it why these these are picked up because it's so easy that the mind has got so much so many shapes and colors and things it can go out to it's almost infinite so you can just drift around in that landscape forever and so yes focusing focusing steady, focusing, and it, and it will work because this is a, find a suitable meditation theme and a suitable mode of practice that works for you and that's worth checking out because you can just, getting through that landscape this is why we spend lifetimes in Sangsara because we're drifting from this landscape and it never ends this is the way through, shortcut and if it takes 15 years it's still short you know, you get an idea—the long view of the, of the Buddha's practice, like you know, thousands of hundreds of lifetimes, fifteen years is just a finger snap. <laughs> and it can take that. It can take that before you, before your mind enters jhana, or enters it. But you know, every time that your mind is not wandering, then definitely that pays off. Every time your mind is not picking up ill will, that pays off. Every bit counts jhana can, can seem very far off or esoteric but uh, it's the probably one of the most common words the buddha used when he described meditation and there is exhortation jayati is means, means enter jhana uh, you know this is what i'm teaching for his realization was um, began apparently in the discourses with you know, practicing a lot of uh, determined, austere practices and suppressing his breath and suppressing his mind and then thinking, oh, wait a minute, this isn't, a step back. And then remembering the time when he was a little boy sitting under a tree and feeling quite peaceful sitting under a tree. His father was in plowing, so he probably felt safe. His father was out there, cool in the shade. And he said, at that time, my mind entered this jhana. I mean, he was only a little boy, he probably wasn't, didn't think of it like that. But this is what the Buddha called it. He called it absorbed. His mind absorbed, it became steady, and it was withdrawn from sense passions, unskillful thoughts. It was withdrawn from that. And there's a happiness in that withdrawal. So he was a little, little boy. And that's a good thing to remember. You know, there's something innocent about it, light. So you know, just imagine you sitting under a tree and not wondering what kind of tree it is or how long you should sit there, what people think of you for sitting under a tree, when it's time for dinner, uh, whether an ant's going to bite you, um, you know, whether you look silly sitting there, just sit under your tree. <laughs> That's what it takes. <laughs> and you say, well, I, I picked up this quality and I entered into that. My breathing in and out, I felt comfortable. I thought, this must be the path to enlightenment it is pleasant, it's a pleasure that's not born of detachment, of withdrawal, not born of gratification, blameless, why don't I do this? And so that's a little picture of the Buddha's liberation process. And it's not to, you know, dismiss this heritage of many different systems that we, that we can draw upon, but to not, remember, don't get lost in the trees. Pick up what what's helpful for you. I'm one teacher. There are other teachers who come through. Check it out. What seems to work for you, but well, reference has to be to to this uh, these, these Buddha's teachings, and you know you, you you don't get far without entering to the topic of jhana and samadhi. So it's good to approach that and fundamentally. You know, it doesn't take long to enter the five hindrances. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, if you want to get through them, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> getting through the five hindrances is definitely good, to be a desirable thing. <laughs> okay. So, when doing walking meditation, what we place our attention onto? Well, it's up to you. What's suitable? Again, the Buddha said, "One walking up and down, one walks up and down, dispelling unprofitable states." So, um, you know, that's it's not it's quite quite wide open, dispelling unprofitable states. Now, I think what I'm trying to encourage is something quite natural, and I know it can feel a little bit uncertain when you don't have a system. What should I be doing? But I'm encouraging you to almost stop meditating and just get right back to what if you weren't meditating, you're sitting there how do you know you're breathing similarly if you're not meditating and you're just walking slowly with no specific to go how would you know you're walking? what would tell you you're walking? you'd probably experience a sense of movement feet plodding away okay we well you've got something there now what helps to steady your mind is the regularity of that movement. Boom, boom, boom. Also, there's no pressure to get anywhere. It's just like a, a very gentle movement. And it's clear enough for your mind to, to, to enter it, to hold it. And just keep dispelling the sense of I should try to, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? You keep, you're doing it. Now if you really, you can focus on the movement of your legs or the movement of the leg and the sensation of the foot hitting the ground next leg, that swing, movement, plop pause, plop, you know that you've got a rhythm there, repeated you can do that, that helps the opposite to dreamy driftiness is rigidity so you know one sense of the mind is just too loose and inactive and it, it's, it's drifting and dreaming and wandering the other sense which has to be mentioned is your mind can get so rigid about doing the right system that it it kind of seizes up and there's no joy in it it's just wooden you don't 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 you're always intense And do you get the quality of piti, sukha? Do you feel comfortable and easy with that? Or are you just doing that because you have this sense of if it's meditation, it's got to be serious. If it's meditation, it must be intense. If it's meditation, it must be something systematic that you do. And you've got to get it right, do the right thing. And these are kind of assumptions that we have. It's a very subtle technique. I don't know... (laughs) Why didn't the Buddha tell us if it was a subtle technique? Maybe it's a bit easier than that. But sometimes it's it's difficult for us to let go of this doingness in meditation, because we tend to value doing so much, being an expert, getting things done, and we're always frightened of getting it wrong, nervous about getting it wrong, and that that hobbles like, that like. Ties your mind into a straitjacket. Essentially we withdraw from unskillful states and unskillful states will arise. (laughs) They have to arise. It's like you're washing a shirt. The dirt has to come out. If you're frightened of dirt, don't wash your shirt. (laughs) So if grubby stuff comes up, you just keep washing away and throw the water away and start again. That's how you do it. It's not a drama. And just use what's necessary. And my personal recommendation is just to try to be as natural as possible without getting sloppy or drifting. Apply sincerity. Apply the wished for clarity. Apply yourself with a sense of inquiry, with a sense of what's happening. So it's certainly integrity, clarity, good attitude necessary. And don't get too tight about it. How does one lay practitioner female knows that one is ready to take on practice in the wilderness? Edge of forest graveyard. How do you get one prepared for this practice of meditation in terms of chanting? To remember by heart certain chants, Purita chanting. Well, lay female practitioner, you're already in the wilderness. It's called Kuala Lumpur. Full of strange creatures, <laughs> and these things on wheels that can kill you at a moment's notice. <laughs> the forests are easy after this. <laughs> there aren't any left. <laughs> the most likely thing you'll find in the forest is a tour bus. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, be prepared to get frightened. That's that's the idea particularly as a female prepare to be frightened frightened of the dark frightened of what might happen feeling insecure uh, be prepared to get frightened and uncomfortable forests are not comfortable uh, so prepare for, that's what you want to prepare for and, and in fact why do the, they recommend going into wild places and graveyards it's to get frightened because fear pushes the mind into a corner if you're frightened, you don't find yourself daydreaming. That's for sure. You're very alert. And then the, Where it really... Point of it saying, you know, you're very alert. And then you say, look, there's nothing you can do. If some tiger or leopard or snake comes this way... You're finished, right? Because <laughs> you can't do a deal. So, are you ready for that? Are you ready to die? And you're going to die one day, anyway. So... Are you ready for that? The inevitable. Do You want to meet that. Are you ready to meet it? So these are really penetrating questions. They really probe right to the jugular, you know, right to the to the nerves. I cannot help but die. And it comes home to you if you're in a wilderness that um, there's nothing you can do about it ultimately. And you, if you're in a dark place in the wilderness, you where do you go? You just sit there, and okay, time to go, I'm ready. That's what, that's what they do it for, because in that the mind unifies, it gets through all the petty rubbish. What somebody said to me five years ago is no longer a topic. <laughs> it kind of makes things very clear, you know, uh, and what people think of me doesn't matter anymore because you're going to die. So your mind drops all these surpluses and becomes quite one-pointed. Because what is there to do if you're you're on the urge of death? Wake up, be alert, be grateful, be clear, let go. That's what it's for. Are you ready for that? And you begin to recognize fear is about something that hasn't happened yet. When a tiger rips your head off, you won't feel frightened, it'll be over. But when you hear it coming, you will be frightened <laughs> of what might happen. So you think, well, okay, you know, can you, can you meet that? And actually, you know, the only thing you're probably going to be frightened of is running out of coffee because there's not many, <laughs> not many wildernesses and tigers left. But you can imagine it. You might get all kinds of things in, in the darkness and in, in the wild. You hear creatures howling and screeching around you. It does all kinds of things. I've done this myself. Terrifying, <laughs> uh, but it certainly brings the mind to one poisonous. Now, in terms of chanting, that's you can learn some chanting because that gives the mind something, so it doesn't freeze. There's no point free, going to fear if you just lock into fear, into into freezing with it, because then your mind snaps. So sometimes people go crazy; you know, their, their, their minds snap there was a monk who was in the jungle and as a tiger so he kind of he got stuck in a tree with a cleft in it he's in this, stuck in this tree and he you know, to, to just protect himself and he, 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 he couldn't handle the amount of fear and his mind just snapped so he never recovered from that so just honestly ask yourself if you're ready and uh, take it gently, a little bit at a time Purita chanting can help give a sense of bringing up the heart, bringing forth good energy, and entering into recollection of the Dhamma. So most of the forest teachers would spend quite a bit of time chanting, reciting suttas and Purita, and you can find them in various books, and there might be tapes of them that you can listen to, recordings to help. Okay, so that's enough for today. and so Let's continue our practice.